Our scripture comes to us today from Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to chapter 13, verses 2. Mark chapter 12. And being so moved, I'd like to start with the reading of the scripture. Mark 12, verse 41 is where I'm going to start. And Jesus sat down opposite of the temple treasury, and he was watching and observing how people were putting money into the treasury. And as they were putting money in, many rich people were putting in large sums of money. But as they were doing so, along comes in verse 42 a poor widow, and she came and put in two small copper coins, clink, clink, which amount to a cent. And calling his disciples, come together, he said to them, Truly I say to you, that poor widow put in more than all of the contributors to the treasury because they put in out of surplus, but she, out of poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been in a series called Economics, or Oikonomica, which is Greek for economics, and we've been talking about money matters, not just individual and personal money matters, hopefully this has been challenging and convicting us personally, but also in a larger sense, money matters, what, what you know, we've been talking about uh, demand and trade, we've been talking last week, we talked about value. So we're kind of talking about money in a big picture scenario sense, especially as a lot of you, you know, you have quote-unquote real jobs from Monday to Friday. And those real jobs entail things like business or medicine or whatever. Or maybe you're a student and you're wrestling with student loans. All of us are learning in growing measure about how finances and money affects our lives. And so we've, in, we've been in this series talking about this big picture perspective. Today what we're going to talk about are systems of finance. Systems. We're talking about systems of economics. And before I launch into a talk about systems, I'd like to reestablish, as I've been doing Sunday after Sunday, it's so important for us to do this. It's a good reminder. I, it's shaping me as I reestablish these three foundations of the series. It's starting to become a thing for me, and I think it will hopefully become a thing for our church as well. But the first foundation of this series is in the kingdom economics. In the economics of Jesus, it seems indisputable to me that the way he values or evaluates things, Jesus sees that the poor come first. The poor come first in all things. They are to be preferred before all others. If I could put this kind of in a visual image, let's say we're having a, a, you know, our potluck at Andrew and Crystal's house next Saturday, and they, there's this huge smorgasbord of food. How would it look if all the people who have plenty to eat are the first in line and the poorest have to wait? No. In the economics of God's kingdom, he turns that upside down. We prefer the poor first, always. The second foundational principle is in preferring the poor, the best way to serve the poor is actually to create wealth opportunities for them. The best way to serve the poor is actually to create wealth opportunities for them. Because after all, what do the poor want? Do the poor want to live like you? Do they want to live like me, like us? What do they want? They want just a little, their own little piece of, you know, they, they want their shade underneath their tree. They want to be able to have their bandwidth, a little bit of margin in their life, their bandwidth released. They want to be able to give good education to their children. You know, a study was done by um, some of these powerful organizations, the World Bank, you know, United Nations, and they did a study in the 1990s of the Global South. What do the people in the Global South, the poor places, uh, places, third world countries, what do they really want? You know, they don't want Porsches. They don't want huge mansions. 
They want just a, a bamboo mat to sleep on. They want a little bit of spare time so that they can go to church. They want a little bit of extra income so that they can help other poor people and also give to the church. The poor, they're not asking for much. They're just asking for their own opportunities. They're asking for the freedom to be able to make a livelihood themselves as well. And so when we talk about the best way to serve the poor, this is the second foundation, the best way to do it is to create opportunities, ramps, on-ramps, for them to also uh, experience flourishing. The best way to serve the poor is to create wealth. And the third and last foundational principle is, therefore, it is appropriate and reasonable to pursue wealth if we go into that enterprise from the perspective of serving the poor. It's appropriate and reasonable, and I know Jesus speaks harshly to rich people. And you would think that Pastor Wayne, he's kind of twisting the words, and Jesus is still very tough on us. But the thing is, if we're going to pursue money, we have to do it from the perspective of serving the poor. That legitimates it. The only appropriate and reasonable reason to pursue wealth is if our motivation is to serve the poor. This is how the kingdom economics, the economics of the kingdom work. So, this is the foundation for this series, and I'll keep repeating that Sunday after Sunday because it's good for us to hear this. So systems, systems, as we kind of talk about systems today, uh, as we talk about economic systems, I want to just kind of set the stage, and I want to show you my cards. Are you ready? You know, if I can just show you really what I'm holding, I really don't have much in my hand. But if I could just show you my cards, this is where I stand when we talk about economics. This might help you to know where I'm coming from. I mean, before I moved to Houston, you know, the very, you know, you know, very red state Texas is. I lived in Seattle. I lived in a very different part of the country. I lived there for a long time. But I can tell you today where I stand, where I stand today is I believe that capitalism, the free market system, is the best way forward. I'm not saying that it's perfect. I'm not saying that it's even good. I'm saying of all of the options that we have seen around the world, the thing that seems to work the best is capitalism. Now the thing is, am I saying capitalism is great and am I extolling its virtues? No, because you have a shadow side to capitalism. There's greed, there's excess, there's consumerism, there's pollution, there's a lot of negative things. That's why I say of all of the different options, it's the lesser of all evils. So I do believe capitalism is the, the best option that we have under the sun forward, and I also believe that globalization, which is basically capitalism, but around the whole world, free markets for the whole world, I think it's generally a good answer to poverty. Has it created problems? Yes, it's created more problems. However, has it reduced poverty around the world significantly? The answer is yes. Now, I know that I told you I would find a website for you. I can give you several websites. If you look up the World Bank, if you look up IMF, if you look up the World Trade Organization, if you look up the UN, all of these government organizations, all of these high power, they will show you that radical or extreme poverty around the world in many nations has been reduced exponentially. And there's more. There's more, more um, changes that we've seen around the world. Um, I've seen this with my own eyes. I've seen this, it's not just the, the statistics. Um, when I was in my 20s, I was free to kind of be, you know, a Jesus hippie, and I traveled the world, and I did a lot of missions work. Um, I remember when I was about 18 years old, maybe 19 years old, is that right? Yeah. I went to China, and I went to Mongolia. And I was in the capital of Mongolia, Ulaanbaatar. And... Uh, you know, if you've ever seen those old Dust Bowl photographs of America during the, uh, the Great Depression, Ulaanbaatar looks like that. It looked like that. It's just basically a Dust Bowl. 
And even the capital city, this place that is uh, supposed to be the thriving center of the entire nation, it was just this dusty, dusty street. Here's the thing. I went back to Ulaanbaatar in about 2002, so a little less than five years later. And the changes in this city were remarkable. In just the span of five years, the way this city changed, um, you know what changed it? I can tell you the answer right now. It was South Korea. South Korean exports to Ulaanbaatar. And the next thing you know, I'm walking down this city street, Ulaanbaatar, and I'm seeing um, Samsung and LG, and the economy is being stimulated by globalization. Fewer people were on the street and drunk. They were lesser. Uh, the, 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 the extreme poverty had been reduced even in that short amount of time. I saw it with my own eyes. So globalization for its flaws has also radically reduced. Now, all of these things, all of these things said, what's my point? My point is this. In order for the world to change, the systems of the world need to be poked. They need to be stimulated. In some cases, they need to be regulated. In some cases, war needs to end in order for stability to come to that region. In some cases, big changes need to happen to the entire economic structure of a country in order for people to be stimulated and incentivized to make their own money and for the poor to be lifted up from the bottom. What we're talking about here is not just hard work. What we're talking about here are systems. Well, Pastor Wayne, don't talk about that. First of all, this is not an economics class. And second of all, just preach the gospel. Why do you need to talk about systems? Because Jesus saw systems. I believe this. The passage that we just read talks about a poor widow that walks along and drops in two coins, clink, clink. And he talks about how beautiful she is. You can almost hear Jesus' words dripping, dripping with, with praise for the widow. She gives everything that she has. But there's more to this. I think Jesus is recognizing a system at work. And he's addressing and challenging that system. And so what I want to do is, have, is do two readings. If you look in your notes, you're going to see two interpretations of this famous story of the widow. The first interpretation in your notes is an appraisal of the widow's charity. This is the traditional reading that most of us are familiar. If you've read this story before, you've walked away saying, therefore, the way for me to give is like the widow. Give everything that I have. Give the shirt off my back. If that were the way that we were supposed to give, we would have a lot of naked people here at church this morning. That's the first reading. But there's a second reading I think, I think is present in here. And that second reading is an indictment of the economic system. And I, for one, am compelled and convinced that this second reading, um, it's, it's definitely there. So let's begin with this first half, this first reading. The appraisal of the widow's charity, which we're most used to. We're most used to this picture in verse 44. Jesus watches these rich people and they're putting money into the offering bag. My wife and I, we, we were in West Africa once. Um, you were with, yeah, we were there together. And I remember um, the way they did offering. It's very different from the church. I mean, many churches in America, the offering bag is passed around and you kind of, nobody's looking. You take out your envelope and then... You know, you put it in, and you just slip it in discreetly. But I remember that they joyously danced forward, and they placed their offering in the front. And that still happens in churches here in America as well. Well, imagine what it would look like if prominently the rich people in Jewish times, in the temple, they walked forward and they gave, and they gave out of their service. So everybody sees what they're giving. This is why Jesus... Elsewhere, he says, don't, you know, if you're giving, don't, don't let your other hand know what it's doing. Make it modest. And Jesus says, Jesus says, they, they put in, these rich people, they were giving, but they were putting in, he says, they put in out of, out of what? 
What is the word? Surplus. This is very interesting. They put in out of their extra, that word surplus in the Greek, perisuo, it can be translated that these rich people gave out of abundance. I can easily tithe $3,000 every month to Woven Church. Why? Because obviously it's a tithe. That means I'm making every month $30,000. Now, if you do the math, I mean, that's, that's some money. So they gave in out of their perisio, their abundance, their overflow. And this is an important idea because if you remember a few weeks back, a few Sundays back, we had a table here and we were serving communion. Actually, if you could pull up that picture, Ryan, this picture that Baxter took for us, there's a picture. And what's cool about this, if you can see the, the cup, like it's like I'm doing some kind of mystical you know, trans, some ceremony, the cup looks like it's burning or it looks like it's, it's like, you know what that is? It's juice overflowing. And I, that was not a mistake. Like I was overflowing the juice and it was pouring down. I did that on purpose. Because for the Jews, they had this, uh, they had this practice called Havdalah. And every time before they broke their Sabbath and they were about to prepare to go to the work week, the patriarch of the family would sit and with a bottle of wine, you know, he would pour the juice, the wine, and he would pour it into the glass, and then it would overflow everywhere. And as it would overflow everywhere, the children would say, Papa, why are you spilling all the wine? And Papa would say, I've got enough in the pantry to spare. The point being, may God, as we work this week, give me enough for my cup, and give me enough to overflow, so that the poor, and the widows, and the aliens, and the street people, they can also have some wine too. I'm not like that. You know, if there's, and if there's a juice, right, and I'm pouring it or something, and I, I don't do this on Sunday morning, but I have to lick the edge because I don't want to waste a single drop. Pretty stingy, right? Stingy. But, you know, this is a thing. You know, even in other cultures, I've seen this. They'll just pour some on the ground. Why are you doing that? Because I can, I've got enough to spare. I have overflow. What Jesus is saying is the rich people, they can afford to overflow, and because they have extra food, extra wine, extra servants, extra resources, they can give because they have overflow. But this widow in verse 44, out of her poverty, she gives everything she owns. She gives the shirt off of her back. In fact, she gives the word there's all she had to live on. She gave everything she had to live on. There are two ways to translate that word live from the Greek. One way is to translate zoe. That Greek word zoe is the name of my daughter. It's, it fits well because my daughter walks into a room. They were telling me this morning and she was being very expressive. And there's this overflowing sense. Zoe is overflowing life. It's when you have extra life. It's when you walk into a room and everybody laughs and you have more, to, and in the end, you don't feel depleted. That's Zoe. That's overflowing life. That's not the word that's used here. That's not the word. The word that's used here for life is bios. Bios is more essential to our being. It's where, you know, biology, or what else? Bios. Right? Bioscometry or something. Bios, it's essential. She was giving not out of her overflowing zoe, she was giving out of her bios. She was giving out of her essence. She was giving out of her innate need. You know, last night I was watching the uh, all-star dunk contest with my family. And, you know, these young, young guys, young guys, tall guys, incredibly athletic um, it was a great dunk over Shaq. That really was pretty amazing. Um, but imagine if you had some of these young athletic guys in your home, and the poor widow is like, she opens her door, and these eight, eight, how many guys on a basketball team, on a starting team? Right? right? Let's just say there's eight. And the, the whole team, the eight guys walk into the house, and the poor widow's hut, and they, they said, do you have anything to eat? And she says, I have pizza. And so she gives them the pizza, and these eight basketball players all eat a slice, and they say, so good, this is delicious. Thank you. By the way, how many slices are in a pizza? Eight. 
I'm so sorry. Are there any left for you? And she says, no. Because she didn't give out of an overflow. She gave to the point where she had no food left. She gave out of her bias. She didn't give out of the overflow of her cup. She gave from the cup, which means she had nothing to drink. She didn't give from the excess food she had in her pantry. She doesn't have a pantry. There are no foods stored. She basically gave you her supper. What's she going to eat? What is she going to eat? Nothing. Nothing. What is she going to drink? Nothing. What is she going to use to buy groceries? Nothing. Why? Because she gave from her essence. She didn't give out of overflowing. You can see that there's a little bit of bite to this. On the one hand, we've read this traditionally to say, we should give everything. We should give the shirt off of our back. Like I said, that would mean there would be a lot of naked people in church today. You have to have at least one outfit, right? You've got to have one outfit. Can a dude say that outfit? You've got to have one outfit. But in the end, she has not even, not even her own essential stuff. This, I think, introduces the possibility of another reading. And this is the second half. An indictment of an economic system. I think what we're seeing here is not just how wonderful this widow is and how we should be like her and we should give the shirt off of our back. Yes, I'm not saying that that's not there. Please understand, I'm not saying that we shouldn't. That Because Je Jesus, oftentimes he does talk about giving everything you have. But the difference is, who does he ask that of? Who does he oftentimes ask that? Sell everything you have. He's talking to the rich. Test me on this, friends. Test me. I don't think Jesus ever really says to the poor, give everything you have. Well, what about the fishermen? The fishermen in that society were middle class. They were middle class. If you could fish your own food, you were pretty good. If you could catch your own food, you were pretty good. So Jesus would say to the, uh, to the upper and to the middle classes, give everything, you, but to the poor? Unless I stand corrected, I don't think he ever really says that. So he does talk about giving everything. But I think this passage is not so much about Jesus saying, we should give everything. He says that, and that reading is there. I'm not discounting it. But I think that this second heading, the indictment of the system, there are some strong, strong clues, strong clues that say there's more than meets the eye to this passage we're traditionally accustomed to reading about generosity. It's more than about generosity. And the clues, and now we're well into the second heading, the second half, the indictment. The first clue that I see is just before this story of the widow. In Mark chapter 12, verse 38 to 40. Listen to this. In Mark chapter 12, verse 38, Jesus, just before the widow's story that I just read, Jesus is observing the scribes. And here come the scribes, and you can tell Jesus is like, gosh, those guys. They walk around in these long robes, and they're sweeping on the floor. You can kiss my ring, right? Kiss my ring. And then they like respectful greetings. Oh, hello, pastor so-and-so, or hello. They like respectful greetings. And they like, to, they like the chief seats in the synagogues. And they like to sit in places of honors. What a bunch of hypocrites is what Jesus is saying. They're doing all these hypocritical things. In addition to that, what do they do in verse 40? They eat up widows' houses. They consume, they eat up widows' homes. Think about that. Do you, do, you see what, do you see what's being said there? I hope I'm not preaching to the point where it's not making, connections are not firing. I, I want you to get this for yourself. So just prior to the story of the widow, Jesus is criticizing the scribes for all of their hypocritical activity. They do all these hypocritical things. They walk around, they want honor, and they eat up the homes of widows. They take away the essential living conditions that a poor widow needs. And they obligate her to this religious system where in the end she has 
not just no over, she doesn't even have her own slice of pizza left. It's very interesting. I think there's more. There's another cue immediately following the story of the widow, immediately after. Now, and it, friends, I want you to understand, you know what I'm doing right now is I'm giving you glasses. I'm a spiritual optometrist. I just want to focus our prescription so that when we read, for example, the Gospel of Mark, we'll understand things like context. We'll understand what Mark is saying. Because oftentimes we'll read through and we'll completely miss what Mark is saying. I'm adjusting the prescription so we can see, especially in the context, before and after, immediately following the story of the widow, Jesus says in chapter 13, verse 1, mind you, the chapters were inserted many generations later, so this is a complete flow on thought, right? After she puts in all she owned, all she had to live on, Jesus was going out of the temple, and as he's leaving this Jewish great temple, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look, what wonderful buildings and stones. And Jesus says, You see all these, but you see this building? Not one stone is going to be left upon another, which will not be torn down. What is he talking about? You see, in chapter 11, 12, and 13, three chapters of the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 11, 12, and 13, there's something in the background, and I've taught this before, I'll teach it again. There's something in the scenery. So if you've ever seen a play or a theater, and you watch the singers in the front, but the thing that really sets the tone is what's in the background. Like if you're watching Cats or something, or if you're watching you know, Hamilton or some Broadway musical, there's something in the background. What's in the background of Mark chapter 11, 12, and 13? What's in the background is this huge building, this huge stone building called the temple. And the temple represented everything in Jewish life back then. The temple represented government. It represented um, uh, uh, the arts. It represented commerce, trade, economics. Everything that happened in the nation, it, the, 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 the temple was like the White House, the Pentagon, and the Federal Reserve all in one. That's what it was. And in the background of these three chapters, the temple, the temple, the temple, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's critiquing everything that this thing represents. Because in chapter 11, when Jesus first enters the temple, what does he do? What does Jesus do when he first enters the temple? He cleanses it. He casts out the money changers the corrupt economic systems. Of course, that, that gets the bosses mad. What are you doing? They're making us money. So he casts out the money changers. What he's doing is he's attacking kind of the economic system there. He does this right from the beginning, and then throughout this story, there's all this stuff, all of these sayings, they're all tied in to the temple. Have you ever wondered why Jesus comes up to the fig tree and he's looking for figs, and there's no figs and he curses the fig tree, and he walks away. And then the disciples come back, and it's dead. Have you ever wondered why he did that? What is Jesus' beef with tree? Why is he mad at the tree? Why is Jesus so mad at the poor What did the tree do to Jesus? This connects. I mean, there's something here. You know, this connects back to Isaiah chapter 5. I'm not going to get into that too much. But there's this whole narrative uh, with the the tree, cursing the tree, and then later there's the parable of the vineyard. All of this stuff is basically Jesus arriving at the tree saying, where's the evidence? Where's the fruit? Show me what you got. Nothing good to show. I'm going to curse it, and it's going to be destroyed. In other words, when Jesus arrives, finally arrives at the great temple, he looks up at it. Eh, not all that. You know, it's it's like arriving at a great city of the world and you hear all about its majesty and you arrive at the city but you look at the slums and the slop in the street and you look at all the poor 
Oh, Wall Street might be great and glorious. It might be doing wonderful things, and there's huge buildings, but when we see all the poverty and all the injustice in the streets, you arrive in that city and you walk around and you say, eh, it's not that great. Not only is it not that great, but this powerful institution that's leading to the slums, it cannot stand. It cannot stand. And you know what's scary? It happened. Forty years after Jesus said this, that glorious temple was completely destroyed. Not a single stone left standing on, on the other. That glorious temple that was designed to protect the widow, to preserve the orphan, to defend the alien, to care for outcasts, that glorious temple instead was exploiting, was hurting, and in the end, if the economic system is corrupt, do you think it'll stand? What happened with the real estate crisis in America with the recession? We had a few rich people up top playing around, playing games, Ponzi schemes. Do you think that system is going to stand? It's going to collapse. It's going to collapse. This is not Jesus even pronouncing judgment. It's just going to happen. If the systems that we live in cannot take care, and this is also a challenge to us at Woven, if our systems here cannot operate in a way that is transparent and democratic, that cares for the poorest, it's, there's something broken and it's going to break. Friends, I'm rounding third base here. What are we talking about? What are we talking about? What we're essentially talking about is this. Charity giving your shirt off your back, that's a good thing. Okay, that's good. But a system has to enable a poor person to have some overflowing of their own. A system has to enable a poor person, empower a poor person, so that they can have the freedom to sit underneath their own tree in the shade, that they can have the overflowing... It doesn't have to be $3,000 a month, even if it's $30 or $3 a month. They want, to have, they want to have this privilege of human flourishing as well. I think the message that we're seeing here is that overflowing is something that everybody should have the right to do. Everyone should have the right to overflow. And if the system is not allowing for that to happen, that system will not stand. If the system does not care for the least of these, that system is destined for destruction. Let me close with a story. Years ago, when I lived in Seattle, um, I lived there for a long enough time to understand the culture of that city. It's protest culture. It's funny because I saw, uh, early on when I lived there, I saw an advertisement, uh, or no, not an advertisement. It was, a, it was a, an article in a magazine. I don't remember what, article, what magazine it was, but it was showing the fashion styles of all of the different cities. And um, they had a, you know, a woman from L.A., a woman from New York. You know, they had a woman from Texas. She was wearing cowboy boots, right? But the woman from Seattle, she was wearing, like, all black. <laughs> And, you know, she wasn't a brunette. She was, like, jet black. And, you know, she was very goth, very goth-looking. That, that's, that's the culture. It's protest culture. It's in the music. It's in the coffee. It's in the weather. It's in the entire culture. Anyway, I, I set the stage and tell you this because in 1999, there was a huge protest that took place in Seattle, downtown Seattle. It was big enough and bad enough that they had to bring in the, the, the police and, like, I don't know if federal, I mean, they basically had to put the city on curfew and martial law. Like, it was, it was that bad. It was like something that you see in a movie. It was like fight the power versus the, the establishment. And they called it the Battle of Seattle. The Battle of Seattle in 1999. Power on the one hand and wealth and corporations 
And then hippies, on the other hand, um, pro-environment, you know, people who were against, you know, you know, big corporations and on the other side, and they were fighting each other. Or they actually, the, 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 the hippies were fighting. You know, they were protesting. They shut down the city. It's a big deal. Well, what was the circumstances that led up to that? And just track with me here. Track with me here a little bit. The circumstances that led up to that was something called the World Trade Organization, this global organization that started with Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher era. They basically big money talking about how to make more big money around the world, right? It already sounds like Dr. Evil, right? And so what they're going to do, the World Trade Organization, they met in Seattle, and they were having a ministerium meeting to talk about how they could stimulate the economy of places like Brazil or places like India, parts of Africa. How could we stimulate trade? And so the way that they were going to do this is they were going to, they were going to impose austerity measures. Austerity measures are basically some strict, uh, strict laws that uh, basically uh, trying to, trying to jumpstart incentivization and trying to jumpstart motivation. Of course, there's some looking down their noses at the poor. They're not willing to work. They're lazy. You know, just smacks of evil. And then these, these rich and powerful people, they were going to cut welfare in a lot of these countries. In other words, money that's going to the poor, they're going to cut it so that there's less money and less social services. This is really, this is, that's evil. That's for the poor. On top of that, you know what they were going to, they're starting to bring into these third world countries McDonald's. And they're bringing in Nike. And they're bringing in all these big American transnational corporations to stimulate business. If I was in Seattle, I mean, yeah, don't, don't bring McDonald's into this nation. Why are you doing that? You want to corrupt the poor people there. Pollution. This is going to result in pollution. All of these countries, now they're going to want to start getting in on the business, and they're going to start driving cars. It's great for the oil and gas industry. More energy, more pollution, like China, for example. I remember being in Beijing in uh, twice those times. Uh, 97 and then 2002, you, you can't breathe. So everything that the WTO is doing, it, it smacks of Dr. Evil. And if we follow Jesus, we should have joined the protesters and said, wrong, fight the power, am I right? Here's the thing, listen to this. Ten years later, ten years later, the effects of the work that they've done actually have proven to reduce poverty drastically. The things that they've done in these nations, the WTO, the IMF, the World Health Organization, all of these big, it's reduced infant mortality in these countries significantly. Now that there's oil and gas that can bring in trucks, they can bring in medical equipment. Medical equipment brings expertise. Expertise brings in so that what's happening, mothers giving birth to children, the, the, the rate of infant mortality has significantly decreased. Not only infant mortality, maternal mortality. Mothers dying in childbirth has drastically decreased as these nations have, have gradually industrialized. My, 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 my wife, bless her heart, would not have survived childbirth, if I can say that. In these nations, preventative things that could have been happened that required two things, modernization, industrialization, in order for these things to happen, they had to tinker with the economy. They had to tinker with the global economy. Are they the good guys? I'm not going that far. I'm not going that far. But what I'm saying is they used the system in order to benefit the poor. Now, there's also corruption. There's tremendous corruption. But at the end of the day, friends, what I'm saying is we have to see, as Jesus saw, not just the single generosity of individuals, but we also have to see as you go back to your workplace, as you work in energy, as you work in medicine, you have to go back as you're in education, as you look at these things and ask the question, how is what I am doing going to serve the poorest and the least of these? 
Because there are things that I can do that can change the world. What can I do? You're just one person. You can make a difference, but you need to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Jesus repeats this often throughout Mark. Do you see? Can you see? The work that you do when it's applied with this systemic insight can change things. In the end, those protesters, the long-haired hippies from Seattle, were they wrong? Were they wrong? And the rich, powerful people of, at the top of the, you know, in the, in the, you know, were they right? No. I think that they were onto something. You know, I wonder, like, I'm not smart enough, right? But what if I was one of those World Trade Organization people and that I'm walking in and I have my briefcase and, and these protesters, they're shouting at me. They're shouting at me and they're saying, you're the bad guy, you're evil, you don't... And, and what, would I, what would I do? What would I have done? You know, would I have just said, get a job? You don't know what you're talking about. I hope that I would have at least sat down and said, let me, help, let me understand. You know, the world being so divided, you know, we don't sit down together enough. You know, in the end, the protesters, they were calling for one thing, and they were right to call for it, accountability. Because when you have absolute power, and nobody's checking their work, bad stuff is going to happen. The recession. You know, the real estate, the Ponzi schemes, bad stuff is going to happen. So the protesters weren't wrong. They were asking for accountability. And I think that is an important thing. That's an important perspective. Let me close off and make this practical as I slide into home plate right now. Four things to make this practical. How can systems serve and not hurt the poor? How can systems serve and not? If you can bring that up on the screen, I want to invite you to take your phones out and just take a picture of these four applications. And I ask you to do that because, honestly, you can delete that picture when it's done. I'm not offended. But if you want to know, if, 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 if at least this is on your screen, and if you're wondering, what were those at? What was Pastor Wayne talking It's on, it's on, it's still there. These four applications, I believe, are important enough. Ryan, if you could just pull the, all of them up, the four applications, as I walk through them one by one. The first practical application for how systems can serve and not hurt the poor, the first one is default. Default with the poor. Defend them. Default with them. If there's a decision to make, the first question in our minds as Christians should always be, how is this going to affect the weakest? How is this going to affect those who are most vulnerable? Default with them. That's the first thing. Here at Kingdom City, how is this going to affect the poorest? Default with them. The second thing is entrust. Entrust people. Entrust them with something. You know, when you see a homeless person on the way here to church, my commute takes me just through West Park, uh, Westheimer, Westheimer Parkway. It's, this, it's kind of like the borderline. You know, north of Westheimer, you have oil companies, you have wealth. South, you have poverty. And there's always a person on the street on the corner. The easy thing to do is to give them money and then close your window and then drive off and forget about them. I, for one, don't think that's the best thing to do. I have friends, I work Throughout my years, I've known people who are recovering drug addicts, recovering alcoholics. I almost guarantee, I don't care what you've seen on YouTube. I don't care what you've seen on YouTube. You give somebody $5, it's going to the liquor store. It's going to the liquor store. And the thing that really I can't abide about that principle, the thing that bothers me the most is, I, I, I feel like I did a good deed, but I don't have to deal with this person ever again. Just because I gave money to somebody makes me feel good, but I, I, that's not really charitable because I can just drive away. And I, don't, I dealt with that person for what? Five seconds. I don't ever have to deal with them again. No, if we really love the poor, you don't work with them for five seconds. 
if we really love the poor, we don't work for them, with them for five, we work with them for 10 years. 10 years. I mean, what did it take for globalization to turn the world around? 10 years. What did it take for parts of Houston to be transformed? Uh, Second Ward, you know, downtown Houston, 10 years. Of course, there's a downside to that, there's a shadow side to that, but really, what does it take? It doesn't take five seconds. Five seconds is not love. Five seconds and five dollars, that's not love. When we entrust somebody with responsibility, we're saying, here, I will work with you. I'll work with you, but I want to see a return on my investment because I'm placing responsibility. I'm entrusting you with something. I want to see you do something with that. What we've effectively done is we've given a carrot. You know what I mean by the carrot, right? Motivation, incentive. Let me, please, let me just tell you one more story. There's a story that comes out of India, and there was a professor that was walking down, I think he was a professor of economics or something, and he was walking down the steps of his, you know, this, insta, you know, this, this university. And as he was walking down, the poor woman there, she was asking for help. He gave her money, and she said, no, 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 I don't want your money. A poor person that doesn't want my money? Yes. She says, I don't want your money. She says, what do you need? I need help. I'm a street vendor. I sell my own wares, but I could use a loan. He says, what do you want a loan for? I could just give you the... She says, I'd like a... No, 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 I want a loan. If I, the banks won't loan me money. Why? Because you, don't, you have no collateral. You have no capital to begin with. You don't represent uh, a business. You're just a private individual, and if they give me a loan, they're going to give me exorbitant rates, which is unbiblical. That's usury. That's 50% interest on somebody's... That, that's, that's immoral. But she says, if you can give me a small loan, right, $200... I'll pay you back with maybe 1% interest or something like that, something reasonable. And he says, what a preposterous idea, but okay. And he gives this widow. And she comes back months, years later, and she gives him his money back with interest, reasonable interest. And she was elevated. She was able to move on. Maybe she was sewing something. She was able to buy a sewing machine now and able to do more. You know what this is called? This is called microfinance. And the guy who started that, his name was Mohammed Yanas. His name is, he's alive. And he started something called Grameen Bank. Friends, this is forward thinking. This is forward thinking. This is the way that we entrust the poor. Don't give the guy on the corner $5 and five seconds and move off. Commit to this person, entrust them with responsibility because what you've given them is far more than $5. You've given them dignity. You've given them incentivization. You've given them stimulus. You've given them an opportunity. That is worth a lot more than $5. That's priceless. This is what ministry to the poor means. We're willing to go long with them. We entrust them with something. And that's the, that's the third E. I'm sorry, the second E. By the way, you can tell this is an acronym. DEEP. So we default, we entrust. Third is endure. We go long, not five seconds, but ten years. Endure long with a person. And finally, the P is pray. How do we go deep? Just pray. Now you might say, Pastor Wayne, clearly you've been back in school studying economics, and we can tell. We can tell, because you're swimming with ideas and you're having fun up there by yourself, Pastor Wayne. What does this mean for me today? I think this fourth and last application is the most practical thing that you and I can do. If you don't know what you can do to serve the poor, just pray. Start actually including the poor in your prayers. Start actually praying regularly. I pray for the people in this community of Houston. I pray that they will have resources. I pray that someone will open you know, a pathway out of poverty for them. I pray for their needs. I pray that they will not have to sleep on the street today. Pray for them. That's probably the best thing that we can do. Teach your children as you sit down over dinner and as you eat before you're about to eat. Pray for the poor and let them see. One last story. 
founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth. The Salvation Army, it's a Christian organization, but back in the day when it started, it was, they were like fervently Christian. They were very activistic. They, they, were not, they, were fer, they were very evangelical is what they were. William Booth, the founder of the, uh, the Salvation Army, um, once took his son, his little boy, into a bar. <laughs> and they walked into the bar, not for, you know, not for the obvious reasons that you might think, you know, now you're a man. <laughs> he took him into the bar, and there were all of the rough people of society, especially, you know, what is this, like 18th century England. And uh, they're, they're, <laughs> they're in the bar, and he tells his son, and they're, 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 he's, they're drinking milk or something, and he says, son, look around. Look around. And his son is scared. And he sees all the people, the poor. And he says, these are your people. Don't you ever forget it. Close your eyes. I don't think we have to go far. We don't have to go to a bar. Just look around. Look around, even right here in Kingdom City. These are your people. What are you going to do about it? These are your people. Are you going to pray for them? I mean, in all the years I've been doing ministry in this church, I always thought that, you know, God wanted me to pursue the influential or the rich or those who liked talking about ideas. I was wrong. For nine years, I was wrong. I think what God is saying is, Wayne, you, you've been looking for the wrong. Forget about the suburbs. Forget about the, 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 forget about that. It's the poor. Change your ministry focus. Look at the poor. The rich, they can come and play if they want. But in the end, this smorgasbord is spread. It's actually spread for the least of these. It's spread for those who don't even have overflow, who don't even have their essence, their essential. And so could I invite you at this time, if you haven't done this ever or if you haven't done this in a while, if you can build up, practice your prayer muscles for the poor.